0: Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John, and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Good to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Exodus chapter 11. For those I may not have met yet, my name is John. It's a pleasure to be with you. For those that I do know, it's a pleasure to be with you. Pastor, you like being with people, don't you? I sure do always good to be with people. It's especially good to be with the people of God. Exodus chapter 11. <clears throat> we have been paying attention to, specifically as we journey through Exodus, we have been paying attention to this theme, that God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. In delivering and redeeming and dwelling with his people, God also brings judgment upon his enemies. There is not an I'm delivering, redeeming, and dwelling with my people and will therefore pay no attention to how people have treated my people or me and we can all just live together. There is a distinction. And as God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people, he brings judgment on those who are not his people. Pharaoh and Egypt are enemies of God. This is important for us to understand as we come into this most terrible, this final, this dreadful scene in human history. Pharaoh and Egypt are enemies of God. They are not God's people. Though I think as we journey through Exodus, we will see where not all of the Egyptians are not God's people. But as a whole, and Pharaoh as their king, they are enemies of God. After nine plagues, take note of that, mentally just put that away, nine plagues have fallen on Egypt, nine judgments, nine great acts God has delivered on Egypt. After nine plagues, Pharaoh is persisting in his rebellious hardness of heart. There's no tune. There's no change in tune with him. He's persisting in it. And even when he shows that he may be relenting, he still just persists in his hardness of heart. He will not let Israel go. He will not listen to God. If I could encourage one thing in everyone's life in this room. Listen to God and obey. Pharaoh will not. He will not listen. He will not obey. He will not let Israel go. So in Exodus 11 through 12 into 13, God delivers one final plague on Egypt. The next few weeks, this must be understood because I'm going to break up scripture perhaps a little more unconventionally than we're used to, and certainly more unconventionally than I am used to. I've done it once before in this uh, journey through Exodus. Remember, we're examining the, the narrative of the ancient people of God. These are our heritage as God's people And I've talked before about how Scripture will often zoom in and zoom out. It's showing you a detailed look, and then it's showing you a larger look. And as we work through this final plague and all that is going on through 11, 12, and even into 13, and all the way through actually even honestly chapter 15, that happens a couple of times. The next few weeks we will be spending our time, this week and next week absolutely for sure, and I think a third week as well, we're going to be spending our time... Examining a midnight hour 3,500 years ago. At midnight, we're going to see it in the text today. At midnight, the final plague was delivered. Everything that we're going to talk about in chapter 12, in chapter 11, in chapter 12, and into 13... It all happens around that midnight hour. So I need us to kind of have that frame of mind. A lot of times we're moving like we're advancing with the plague of the blood. The water turned to blood. Remember it said seven days passed while the water was blood. So sometimes scripture moves at a fast pace and verse to verse is many years. In these next few chapters, we're spending our time in a 24-hour time period. So we need to pay attention to that as we move along. And let's read about what would happen at that midnight hour. Exodus chapter 11, follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. And then we're going to go to chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, "...yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely." Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out Of his land, chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for great understanding from your Spirit as we examine your Word Father, I humble myself before you to be used by you to speak your word to the hearts of those gathered here. Father, I pray that you would speak to me as you speak through me, that my heart and my ears and my mind would be attentive to your word, God. Father, I pray for understanding. Help us, Father, to know you and to understand how to live before you. Help us to understand the distinctions between the world and your people. God, I pray today through the preaching of the word that sinners would be humbled to salvation and repentance. I pray, Father, that holiness among your people would be promoted, that we would be holy as you command us to be. And I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One plague more. Exodus chapter 11, one plague more. I think I put the title on the screen backwards. I like to take it right from the text, right in the opening verse. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt. I have one goal from today's text. I think it's extremely important that we pay attention to this. We don't necessarily always talk about it, but I think that this text establishes it so clearly, and I think that as we work through chapter 11, the end of 12, I think that next week when we work through uh, chapter 12, the Passover, when we get into the exodus, and he talks about the, the very first feast there to celebrate, I have one point that we need to really focus in on as God's people, and that is this point. The promise of God that the exodus from this life to eternity has a time fixed by God. Just as we're reading about it, and this time is fixed, and we'll look at it more, just as this time was fixed at midnight, the deliverance of God's people from this life in a greater exodus led by a greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a greater promised land, eternity with God, has a fixed time time where it will happen. The reason that I want us to think about this more is because I think that the return of Christ and eternity is such a strange and foreign thought to us. We, we like the here and now. We, we all have things we hope to do today and things to accomplish throughout this week and, and we want to see our children grow up and live a good life, but we are not necessarily living as often as we should With the thought that at the midnight hour, Christ may come for us and lead us home. From today's text, I pray that we cling evermore to the promise of God that our exodus from this life to eternity has a time that is fixed, a date and a time because the Lord has said so and it will happen as the Lord has said. You can't forestall the judgment and the coming of our Lord. Exodus chapter 11 and verse 1, the Lord says, Yet one more plague. God tells Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3, I've been reminding us of this point, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. A mighty hand will be required. Pharaoh is going to have to be, what would we say, humbled to the ground. A pastor that I used to listen to years ago would talk about God coming upon someone with the full weight of himself. That's what's happening to Pharaoh in Egypt right now. The full weight of God is pressing down on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And when that mighty hand presses him to the ground, he will relent and he will let the people go because God has said so. God told him, unless a mighty hand compels him, he will not let the people of Israel go. Here is the warning of that mighty hand doing its final pressing. He says, one plague more. Then he will let you go. Notice that in all of the plagues prior, what has happened? Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. Rise early and go, go, and then just another plague happens. One, two, three, it happens. Three times over, let my people go. If you refuse, this will happen. One plague more, afterward, he will let you go. God has never said those words to Moses and Aaron Along all of those nine plagues, what we have never seen God say to his people is just one more, just one more. Like we consider the nine plagues happening and we consider how perhaps it may have been a bit, uh, mm, I'm not sure what the right word would be, I can't grasp it in my vocabulary right now, like the people of Israel watching and just thinking, this one, this one, maybe this one. And we think and focus on the Egyptians being judged because that is what is happening. And we see God setting apart his people. And though the Egyptians are being crushed, the people of God are still prospering. They have light and darkness. Their cattle don't die. They don't have the source. They have water. Like, God has made this distinction between them. But we don't think about the anticipation every time a plague happens. This one. This one. This will be the one. Can you imagine... What they must have thought after the 7th, the 8th, the ninth, this one, when Lord, we see your judgment, we see what you're doing, you've told us you'll deliver, but when, and God here finally, the 10th plague, the final plague, says to Moses, after this one, he will let you go. Listen, the reason that we need to cling more and more to the promise of God that our deliverance from this life has been fixed is because though we may be asking, when, oh Lord, for how much longer, how long, oh Lord, that date, that time is fixed. And you'll either leave this life prior to that or you'll be here when it happens because everything has a time fixed and attached to it by our God. This was the whole point of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Everything has a time. When Pharaoh lets you go, let's pay attention to a couple of words that are important. When Pharaoh lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Moses, my servant, you've done real well to not accept the conditions and the terms that have been offered to you. When Pharaoh... Finally acts according to my will, in my final act of judgment on him and his land, he will drive you away completely. I want you to recall, through nine plagues, I wrote this down and I was kind of astounded at the different variations and how they go in this kind of order. Ready? Through nine plagues, Pharaoh has once said nothing but wouldn't let them go. Only one time, and it happened in chapter nine. Only one time did Pharaoh not say a word and not let the people go, one time. Twice, he said he would let them go and then changed his mind. Twice. Three times, you paying attention here? One, two, three. These are the actions of Pharaoh. Three times, he didn't even listen. The plague came, the plague happened, eh, he didn't even listen. Four times, Pharaoh offered to let them go with conditions. Remember, one time it was stay in the land. That same instance, it was fine going to the wilderness, but don't go too far away. And then there was the time where Pharaoh said, only the men may go. You, Moses, up with all the men and go. Leave your women, your children, and all that behind. And then the last condition that he gave, four times he gave conditions, was you can all go, but you leave your flocks and your herds behind. He's setting these conditions and giving these terms to Moses, the ambassador of God who God has spoken with face-to-face saying, go to Pharaoh, do this, I will do this, and, and Moses is not giving an inch on accepting these conditions. Pharaoh is trying to make deals over and over and over, but this time is going to be a different situation altogether. Here, God reminds Moses, when you go out, it will be completely. My people will utterly abandon this land. Every man, every woman, every child, all of the flocks, All of the herds, there will be nothing left. This gives us great hope, actually, as we consider our own exodus from this life when God calls us home, when God calls His church out, as we heard in Revelation chapter 16, which I know that some weeks we probably look at the scripture and we're like, this one's not really picking me up to worship. Oh man, Revelation 16 revved me up to sing all morning long. Why? Because an angel stepped out and said, it's done. It's all done. God sent me to do a job. It's done. Like that should give us great hope. It's all going to be wrapped up. God has said so. And when God returns for us, when Christ steps out on the cloud and calls us home, there will be no trace of God left on this earth when he pours out his wrath and his judgment on the sons of disobedience. Do you understand now the great, great value of the cross of Christ? Christ. If you sit here today as a believer through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the wrath that your sin deserved was poured out on him. You've received that by nothing of yourself. By doing nothing. Simply by believing in faith. Simply through faith, God, according to his mercy, saves you by his grace because he poured out all of his wrath on Christ Do you know what happened happened to Christ? It says in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, he was pleased to crush him. When you read, I'm about to change the way you all read the book of Revelation. When you read the revelation of John to God's people, all of that stuff that you don't like and you don't understand, all of that stuff that scares you, all of that stuff that you're like, oh my gosh, Hailstones, 100 pounds crushing people. All of that happened to Christ on the cross for you. It's much more than just nails and whips and thorns and a spear in the side. What Christ received on the cross was the full wrath of God. He took all of it, He bore it all. For our salvation. And when you read Revelation, everything you read is being poured out on what? No trace of God's people. You'll be utterly delivered, completely taken out of the land. God reminds Moses, when you go, Pharaoh will drive you away completely. It's interesting, the end of chapter, or the end of verse 3 here, we start to notice favor right? Speak now, verse 2 says, in the hearing of the people that they may ask of his neighbor and every woman of their, of her neighbor for silver and gold. Remember that warlike overture that happened in Exodus chapter 3? Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Not going out empty-handed. Here, say these things in, in public, not just to Pharaoh. Say these, speak now in the hearing of the people that the people may ask, and look what the Lord did. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, this isn't necessarily to be fully understood as, gosh, you Israelite people, you've been here for hundreds of years, and I just realized, I love you. No, no, Egypt is ruined. Remember what they said? We're ruined! It's ruined! Send them out, it's ruined. No, there's definitely not a a lovey-dovey, but we're going to see where there are Egyptians who come with the people. They're not all left in Egypt. Why? Because God has people among every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he always has. And our great concern, my great concern, is that we have come to understand God having two people, and he never has. He has one people. He pulls people out of Egypt when he pulls his people out of Egypt. But before he does, he says the people will have favor. He gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, I was thinking about this God giving people favor in the eyes of their enemy, right? We don't necessarily walk around thinking every day that the people we encounter are our enemies. No unbelievers in the world, we wouldn't count them as enemies. We, I, you're my friend, right? Sometimes those are the most difficult relationships for us as Christians, too, are they not? Where that, that tension of I'm a believer and you're not a believer just is so thick and you don't know what to do. You realize that spiritually speaking, those who are unbelievers and those who are believers are at odds with one another because of Christ. There is a friction that is not reconcilable outside of Christ. But here God says he will give the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Do You understand, Christian, we are a people who when good things happen to us in this life at the hand of our enemies, it is because of God's favor that it happens. And we are a people that should be favorable. Sons of light, daughters of light, messengers of the gospel of peace. We are a people that people should want to show favor to. Our life should be lived in a way where people are favorable to us. We observe it here with the Hebrews in Egypt. Other examples of this happening throughout scripture, I wrote down a few. Uh, When Cyrus, king of Persia, ends the Jewish exile that began under Nebuchadnezzar in 1st 2nd Chronicles 35, he favorably sends them to rebuild the temple of the Lord and returns all of their rightful possessions that Nebuchadnezzar took into Babylon. I want you to think about that. Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked Jerusalem and carried off all the treasure he could carry off into his treasure hold in Babylon. And then The Medo-Persian Empire conquers him and the Medo Empire just kind of crumbles and goes away and the Persian Empire is established and King Cyrus has all that stuff that Nebuchadnezzar, however long before, took. He not only gives them favor to go and rebuild the temple, he says, listen, all of this stuff was taken from your people. All of this stuff comes from your homeland. It all goes to the temple of your God, which I am saying, go and build. He has favor on those returning exiles. It happens in Ezra chapter 1, you can see it. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah asks for favor of the Lord before the king. Oh, now, Lord, grant me favor. Have favor on me before this man. Nehemiah, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Nehemiah goes before the king. The king says, What's wrong with you? He's like, Why shouldn't I be dejected and sad, O king, when my nation is a disaster? What do you want to do? I want to rebuild. Go and rebuild go and build the city of your God. And what does he do? Gives him letters to the the treasurers, gives him letters to woods in the forest, like go, and he has favor on Nehemiah and sends him, and Nehemiah uses that favor to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. One of the most poignant points in scripture that I can think of where we see God through his people, giving his people favor from people who are not his people. I know that was a tongue twister and our minds are all screwed up now. Think about it. God enables his people to receive the favorable look of those who are not his people. That's the work of God. It's in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. When a brand new church, speaking out not only against the Jewish customs and religion, but also not really giving a rip about the Roman Empire either. like They got enemies all around them as this new thing comes off the ground and they say, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, he rose again, he's ascended, believe on Jesus and be saved. As this new church begins in Acts chapter 2, it says, they had favor of all the people. I'm reminded that in Galatians, youth, we're going to study the fruit of the Spirit on, set, on Sunday nights. I'm reminded that the fruit of the Spirit is followed up by a phrase that says, against such things, there is no law. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The marks of a believer. There's no law against those things. The world may look favorably upon you. Now this is held in tension with the fact that the world may also persecute you. Right? So now we've got two things that are opposed to one another, opposing us. Oh, just follow God. Look to him and trust in him. The favor of God on his people That they should receive favor from those who are not his people. I don't know how many of you have ever thought about it. The Christian life is a great paradox. Loved by some, hated by all. Where there's a tension in our lives. Christ saves and redeems, and people may look favorable. People may shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he! who comes in the name of the Lord. They may wave palm branches and they may throw cloaks down on the ground as you ride into the city on the foal of a donkey. And one week later, they may turn and say, Nail him to the cross. Do you understand? Now, now what we're looking at in our own lives. That is our life. Christ left for us an example that we should follow in his steps. And Peter's not just talking about do the things that Jesus did. He's talking about Christ was suffered. He suffered. He was persecuted. He left you an example. Be persecuted. Suffer. But in that, people may have favor. And here in Exodus, the Egyptians are going to show favor. It says that the Lord gave the people favor. And then it says, moreover, The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Very great in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. Remember we talked early in Exodus, you had to be here several months ago, when we talked about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, saying that Moses was a man mighty in word and deed. And then we examined how Moses shows nothing of the character of a man who's mighty in word and deed. He shrinks back from everything. He's afraid of the king. He leaves the land. I think it's all a part of God's plan. We know that it's all a part of God's plan. Yet Stephen in the New Testament says that Moses was mighty in word and deed. We struggled to see it. And then all of a sudden, here we come to this final plague. And Moses is speaking. And God tells us, writing through Moses, that all of Pharaoh's servants, the people, were looking at this man and saying, this is a different guy. This is not... This is not the Moses we thought. He has favor. He's great in their sight. Why? Because God has made him. This thought came to me not long ago reading a book that oh, I struggle to read through it, but the author made this point and I just loved it. Moses is the prototype of the kings of Israel, but he's never the king. Moses is precisely what every king of Israel needed to be, and he never was. Why? Because as we would journey through the rest of the Torah, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God would remind his people over and over and over, I'm the king. I am king. And even when King David is appointed, the Lord calls David his prince. Well, what's a prince? Well, a prince is next in line to a king. He's not the king. I've appointed you prince. Over my people, Moses is great in their sight and now it's not difficult for us to see the contrast as we head into the final plague and we're going to go into the Passover. Eventually we're going to come out in the exodus and we're going to go forward into the wilderness. It's not hard to see the man Moses in this king type figure. And they're now looking at two different leaders, right? If I'm an Egyptian, I'm over here and I'm looking at my king who can't do a thing. Nine plagues deep and nothing's happened. Great, some magicians made some blood. They called up some gnats. It was all wonderful. But you know what? Now I've had sores. My livestock are dead. We sat in darkness. There was the gnats, all this stuff, and our king could do nothing. And what do I look and see? I see the man Moses coming, and he keeps saying, This will happen. Obey God. If you refuse, this will happen. Obey God. If you refuse, this will happen. And all of a sudden, if I'm an Egyptian, I'm going, Pharaoh, I don't know what kind of king you are anymore. You're weak. Pharaoh, and this man, every time he shows up, everything he says happens, right down to the letter. i are starting to see him. We should remember this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It is God's grace in our lives. God's grace that produces God's results in our lives. You're not producing results of your own. And you know if you are, because they normally fail. God's grace... Well, I don't know, pastor. I'm a pretty smart guy. That's God's grace to you. I don't know, pastor. I've got resource. That's God's grace to you. Do you understand? Our lives are all of God's grace and for his glory. We learn about this final plague. There's three verses in. We learn about this final plague, interestingly, from Moses recording what he said to Pharaoh. This is also interesting. Why? Because in previous plagues it has been God telling Moses and then Moses going and in this one we just have God say to Moses one more plague after that he'll let you go speak now verse one and two then in verse four so Moses said what well what did God say Moses we're about to find out in verse four he starts talking about this plague and what will happen thus says the Lord about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and we start to learn what this plague will be Interesting as we compare it to previous plagues. This plague will not come like any of the previous nine plagues. Remember how they've all happened? Every one of them. Every plague that's happened. Whether Pharaoh has been addressed or not, every single plague has come in one way. And they stretched forth their hand with the staff and X and Y and Z. This one, there is no stretching out of the hand. There is no Go to Pharaoh, say in the presence of the people. Why? Because this isn't going to impact a household. It's going to impact an entire land. And as we'll learn in chapter 12, could have impacted two entire lands, but God gave a distinction. We'll talk about that later. No plague, no no staff, no stretching out of the hand, no summoning by Aaron and Moses. God bringing these things about through these men, through his servants. None of that. The Lord Him. Self will deliver this plague. I want to touch on this brief point. If you've ever watched any kind of movie that has anything to do with Moses, if you've ever watched any kind of kid's cartoon that has anything to do with Moses, if you've ever read many books, it's always illustrated that something brings the death. Upon Egypt. Whether some agent was here used by God to administer death or not, we do not know. What do we know? God said, About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Verse 29 says, At midnight, the Lord struck down. Whether we are talking about some agent being used by God to bring death or not, what do we know about death? This. Life and death are squarely, solely, and authoritatively without question in God's hands. Life and death are God's to give and take, not ours. It's not up to us. We do not get to determine. Many try, many do. Death and life are in God's hands and in God's alone. God says this in Deuteronomy 32, 39, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. Well, it doesn't get any more clearer than that, does it? I kill and I make alive. Hannah crying out in 1 Samuel chapter 2 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I brought it up earlier. Remember when we journeyed through Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, fixed by God. We know that destroying angels have gone out from God. Actually, as we stand here In Exodus chapter 11, we know that destroying angels have gone out from God in the history of God's people. And everybody said, when did they do that, pastor? And I said, Sodom and Gomorrah. There are different figures involved in Sodom and Gomorrah that we're like, oh, who's that and who's that? But very clearly, whoever actually calls down the fire and brimstone that consumes Sodom and Gomorrah is quite clearly not God and quite clearly not a person of the Trinity, because they say, for I can do nothing until this happens. What's that? That's a person under authority. And what is God? God is authority. God is not under authority. God is all authority. We know that the destroying angels have gone out before this scene in history. And we know the destroying angels are going to go out after this scene in history. And you're like, Pastor, when does that happen again? Where does that happen? It happens in Numbers chapter 22 with a guy named Balaam and his donkey that talks to him. You remember the story that we all snicker about? We're like, man, that just seems utterly ridiculous. But do you remember who's standing ahead of the donkey and who's ready to lop off Balaam's head? An angel. What was that angel's assignment? Go. You're to do this. Now, was he to do it? Well, if he was to do it, it would have happened because God doesn't rescind what he decrees. He's standing there and Balaam learns his lesson. But a destroying angel appears to him nonetheless. We know that in Psalm 78, the writer of Psalm 78 says, he, God, struck. In Psalm 135, he it was who struck in Psalm 136, to him who struck, whether there was an agent involved that administered death or whether it was at the hand of God himself, it happened squarely and authoritatively under God's power. This is my judgment. And then we might start thinking, well, I don't know, Pastor, like, would God do that? Tell me whose throne the unbeliever will stand before at the end of time. And tell me who will be seated on the throne when the unbelievers come before him. And tell me who it is seated on the throne who will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the hell of fire reserved for Satan and his demons. It's the Lord, no agent. We should be careful to remember that judgment is God's. God told Moses... To tell Pharaoh, you'll remember in Exodus 4, I brought this up often. There's a reason that I keep reminding you of certain things along the way because now all of a sudden, the firstborn of Egypt are going to die and we're like, oh my gosh, how awful. Pastor, you're like encouraging us to vote no on a proposal that says we shouldn't kill the unborn, but God's going to kill the firstborn in the land. And we are not God. He is God and this is righteous judgment. And if you can't separate... A proposal in a state from the righteous judgment of God Almighty. We have got bigger discussions to have. Everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe he could have done it some other way, right?" As we've journeyed through this, let's just acknowledge what our flesh feels as we see these plagues happen. He could have done it some other way, but he didn't. He is not God. Egypt and Pharaoh is sinful. They are enemies of God. They are refusing to obey God. And what is God doing? He is dispensing righteous judgment. And he is right when he does so. God told Moses back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, before Moses was even in Egypt, before all the plagues, before he'd gone to Pharaoh and said a word, he said to him, tell him to let my firstborn go. If he doesn't, I will kill his firstborn. And then what happened? Blood Frogs, flies, gnats, livestock, sores, hail, locusts, darkness. I won't obey. I won't. Once he said nothing. Twice he said he would, then he changed his mind. Three times he didn't even listen. Four times he tried to give conditions. Do you understand the persistent hard-heartedness of Pharaoh to not relent and say, Mercy! Mercy from you, Lord! Not once just continues and he is driving his country into utter destruction. Pharaoh refused to obey God and God has rendered the judgment that he warned of and that is divine righteousness. It's what we cannot understand. It is divinely right for God to act in the way that he is acting. This plague would claim the life of every firstborn child, of every station of life, and of the livestock. Did you pay attention to what it said in verse 30? Not a house where someone was not dead. This is what the plague will do. It will happen at midnight. This is not the first time that a plague has been set, the time has been set by God. It will happen at midnight. Remember our thought this week? God has fixed a day, fixed a time when it will happen. This judgment, this plague, happened at midnight. It will cause a great cry. These things are so important. You understand what's not going to happen? This plague's not going to happen in any kind of a way where Pharaoh in Egypt can cover it up and say, I don't know what your God did. Your God didn't do nothing. This plague is going to affect every single house. It's not going to be discovered in the morning. Somehow, in some way, whatever happened with this plague, it caused the houses to stir at midnight. There's a commotion. There's a rattle. There's a death moan. Something was happening where they had to go and put their eyes on the effect of their sin, their dying firstborn children. You're not covering this up, Pharaoh. You're not going to say it was just some fluke. Oh, the water, sometimes it turns to blood. It's not uncommon to have unseasonably heavy frog seasons and flies and gnats and locusts, and sometimes it hails, and, and sometimes it gets dark. And No, this is going to be so divinely powerful. That they will be left, pay attention, without excuse. God did this among us. It will cause a great cry such as never been heard. It won't be quiet, it won't be hidden. Interesting. Did you notice in verse 7? How many of you saw that and thought, oh, dogs growling? I don't like it when dogs growl, unless it's my dog growling at someone that I don't know, right? Verse 7 Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, why? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why a dog growling? Why not like a cat? Why not like stuff gets stirred up, a clankety noise, something other? Why a dog growling? Well, it's interesting. Philip Riken in his commentary notes how the ancient Egyptians have an infatuation with the afterlife. Pastor, is that true? Yes, I present two exhibits of evidence for you. Exhibit A, pyramids. Exhibit B, mummies. Known historical fact. We don't have to dispute that. Like, you can take that to the bank on any person that wants to decry what we're talking about. Mummies and pyramids. They have an infatuation with it. You know what else they had? Ancient Egyptians. They had a god that they believed would transport souls through the act of dying and into the afterlife. I didn't even bother looking up his name. It was inconsequential to whatever the God's name was. But can you take a wild guess as to what embodied this God? You're right, a dog. So when Moses writes here to us, and when he says to Pharaoh, but not a dog shall growl against my people, he's saying, well, your God may be coming for you, but I know why. Because the Lord God is spending judgment on you. Not a dog will growl that you may know that there is a distinction. Look at, that there is a distinction, that the Lord makes a distinction. Catch those words. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog will growl against anyone in Israel so that they will know that a distinction has been made, a distinction that comes at God's decision. Verse 8, all your servants will bow down to me. We're going to see it happen. We're going to watch it play out. All of your servants will come and bow down and say, get out. And then he leaves in hot anger, showing us perhaps the first. I didn't go back to actually see. We've seen some emotion from Moses before. Who am I that I should go? He's afraid, and he leaves ex- He leaves Egypt here It says he goes out in hot anger, the end of verse 8, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. I was thinking about all that's wrapped up in that phrase. I'm sure that on many fronts, Moses is in utter turmoil. Why? Because what have we seen? Moses has interceded for his enemies in prayer. Oh God, relent. Oh God, spare. End this plague on them. Here he goes out in hot anger. And I think that many fronts are grieving him. What does he know is going to happen? What is going to happen? He knows what's going to happen. There's no if you. At midnight I will go. After one more plague he will let you go. I will at midnight take the life of every firstborn. Moses knows what's about to happen. And remember that he lived 40 years in Egypt as one of them. Then he was away 40 years and now he's been back for a time. He knows people that are about to lose children. Pharaoh. You have a son, and you're condemning him to death right now in your actions. Your actions have brought this upon your entire family. It goes out in hot anger, but do you know what he shows us? Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17 says that we should never rejoice at the downfall of an enemy. How many kids in the room know what it's like when your younger sister or younger brother gets in trouble instead of you? How many older kids in the room remember a younger sibling, or a friend or whoever getting in trouble instead of you? And how many of you ever thought, oh, I feel so bad for them. I did that. They got in trouble. God says that's counter to how we should live as his people. We don't rejoice at the downfall of an enemy. And here Moses is in hot anger. Why? Because this plague will happen. It didn't need to, Pharaoh. You could have softened your heart. You could have pled for the mercy of God. If you refuse, if you refuse, if you refuse, nine times over, you have refused, and there's no more chance for you to refuse. The mercy of God has expired, Pharaoh. He departs in hot anger, and I, can, I can't even imagine the amount of emotion that he would have been experiencing that moment, knowing what's about to happen. Moses records a brief statement in verse 10 for us. Just as a, it's kind of like an emphatic exclamation point at the end of these plague descriptions. The plague hasn't even happened yet. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You've had all the opportunity. You've had it. You squandered it. And just as the Lord has said, you've now been handed over to the disobedience and hard-heartedness of your own heart. Never once do we see in chapter 11, if you refuse, I will. This is simply time for judgment. This is that Revelation 16, 17 moment of the angel saying, it is done. The mercy of God has an expiration date on it that no one knows but himself. And then, and then it happened. What? What exactly happened? 11, 1 through 10 to 12, 29 through 32, what happened? The wages of sin came due. What is the wage of sin? Death. Well, but pastor, that's just spiritual. Oh no, it's absolutely spiritual. And sometimes it's also physical. The wages of sin is death. And they came due upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, every house in Egypt. There was not a house not affected where someone was not dead. This plague comes, it happens on the firstborn of every person. It happens on the firstborn of the livestock. It happens in Pharaoh's own house so that in the middle of the night, he says, go and get Moses and Aaron. My son is dead. How many times has he waited the next morning. And then they called. No, Pharaoh knows this death rattle is happening in his home and in the middle of the night. Remember the last time Pharaoh saw Moses? Do you remember what what Pharaoh said to him? The next time you see my face, you'll die. Go get him. Right now. Because my boy's dying or dead or get him now. Go get him. And they bring him in Notice, in the middle of the night, this doesn't say anything next day, next time. We're right in that midnight hour. At midnight, the Lord struck, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and he summoned Moses, verse 31. And what does he say to him? Get out! Go! Up! All of you! No deals. No conditions. No waiting. Right now, Moses, What are we left with? Judgment of God happens. Moses, as he said, your servants will come to me and say, get out. You've called me. You're saying, get out. And what happens? The only thing left to happen, a nation on its knees, a king powerless, a father grieving, get out of the land, all of you. You notice the last words he says here at the end of verse 32? This is so tongue-in-cheek, like, Pharaoh, what is wrong with you? And bless me. And bless me. Pharaoh, there's no blessing for you. There's no opportunity for you to be blessed. You've been surrendered to the desire of your heart. Remember that phrase we all struggle with? If you've read it, there's been times when you have just absolutely struggled. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. And we're like, oh, I don't like reading that. No, we don't like reading that. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Remember what happens? Jacob deceives Isaac and gets the blessing that Esau should have gotten. And everybody said, what in the world does Jacob and Esau have to do with Moses and Exodus and Pharaoh's dead kid. It has to do with this. Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that he had to give. And do you remember the words of Esau, the brother, when he came? My father, bless me. Haven't you reserved something? Can I? Anything. And do you remember what Isaac says? No, my son, there's nothing for you. Pharaoh says, and bless me, Pharaoh, there's nothing for you. You have been handed over in the hardness of your heart, in the resistance of obeying God, at the opportunities, all the opportunities that you had before the plagues even happened, you had opportunities to surrender your heart and let the people go, but you lived on in stubborn resistance to God, and he has now judged you in finality. There is nothing left to say except get out, every one of you. as we see Pharaoh and Moses and all of Egypt mourning, even in our own hearts, even as we read this, we shouldn't think, God got him. You know why? Because you're rejoicing over the downfall of an enemy. That should stir and move us to compassion. If God wishes that none would perish, why would we rejoice over it? If God wishes that all would reach the knowledge of salvation and be saved, why would we not wish the same? As we see them mourning, chasing, almost chasing Israel out of the land, we are right to check ourselves against the same warnings given to us in Scripture. There is a time fixed where the judgment of God will happen. Are you obeying God? Are you doing what God says? Are you humbling yourself before God? Are you acting like Pharaoh? Or are you listening to everything that God says to Pharaoh and acting unlike Pharaoh that you might receive mercy and grace from our God? In Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus tells us that no one but the Father knows the hour of the Son's return. In Exodus 11, we've got this lucky thing happening. Lucky, what a terrible word. We've got this unique situation where God says to Moses, At midnight I will. We have a midnight hour approaching but we don't know what time it is let that settle we have a midnight hour approaching but we don't know what time it is paul wrote to the thessalonians in first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2 the day of the lord will come like a thief when when like a thief in like a thief in the night just as at midnight God visited Egypt, so too at an unknown, unpredictable time in our future, the Lord God will return and bring with him all that he has said. Paul would go on to say, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, anyone that has ever held the hand of a woman as she has gone into labor and delivered a child knows when that moment comes, you don't know when it's going to come. Oh, pastor, I knew it was going to come. I had a scheduled time with the Yeah, sure you did, but you didn't know you were going to have a scheduled time. And let me tell you, even the scheduled times get messed up. Bam! Uh Uh-oh! Whoa! Whoa! That's how the return of our God will be. That is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know not when. This is what brings the urgency of the gospel message to us. We should be bringing an urgent message to the people around us. This should create a sense of urgency in you. Is my house in order? Oh, man, are we going to look at houses being in order next week? Holy smokes. You better watch out because houses being in order is going to take on a whole new term after we get through Exodus chapter 12. We're going to talk about houses being in order, but we can't wait till next week. Is your house in order right now? You can't, oh, that's great, Pastor. I'll just pause and come back next week and learn how to put my house in order. Here's how you do it. Repent of sin. Trust and obey God and his word. Pharaoh and all of Egypt were unprepared. They were not ready. Next week, we're going to look at a people with a distinction who will make themselves ready. And we find ourselves living in the same stream of those people, God's people. The warning has been sounded. The judgment has been determined. An unknown hour approaches, and we don't know what time it is. Are you ready for that? We're going to sing a song, and it's kind of extremely intentional, to be honest with you. What is your hope right now? If this life is over right now, what is your hope? Is your house in order? Are you ready? It's as simple as calling out to God. And I have such a blessed opportunity to preach week after week month after month, year after year with some of you, and to sound this warning, to sound this call. And I remember living in my own hypocrisy and not living God's word in my life. And so I sound the call again. Have you repented of sin? Are you trusting Christ by faith? Are you obeying his word? Oh God, save me, a sinner. It's not too late. The midnight hour hasn't come yet. You're sitting here hearing this news Repent and trust Christ today. Heavenly Father, I come before you. Oh God, may we be a people who lives knowing that you have set a time for return. Knowing that there will come a moment that you will call your people home and we must be ready by the blood of Christ through faith in him. Receiving only your mercy and by your grace. Father, I pray that you would make us a people ready for your return. I pray, God, that we would be making ourselves a people ready for your return. Father, that we would be daily in your word, daily in prayer, daily tuning our lives to obey you and to follow you, that when you return, we may take up with joy. The bridegroom comes. Father, come quickly. We long to be with you. We long to see you to be known fully and to fully know, oh God, our salvation, our hope, we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at the Until next time, stay in God's Word.